Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial health and uh, wellness, and today's uh, guest is is going to talk about her journey uh, overcoming a lot of adversity in her life. Uh, her name is Sathya Che Patterson. She's the managing partner and wealth advisor at Arise Private Wealth in Rolling Hills Estates, California just minutes from where I grew up. Um, Safia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, Safia is also, uh, she founded a, a sound healing and meditation band called Heart of Ananda, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, uh, Safia's journey um, starts from uh, when she was born. Um, she was born in a Thai refugee camp as her family fled from the Cambodian genocide and arrived in the U.S. financially destitute, her humble beginnings and financially challenged upbringing define her childhood truth. Um, so, Safia, take us back. Um, I mean, tell us about, you know, obviously I know a lot of this happened before you were born, but your family's journey uh, out of Cambodia and, you know, how your family escaped the Cambodian genocide. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, some people may or may not know that in 1974, a communist party took over in Cambodia, overthrew their current government at that time, and had this ethnic cleansing. I mean, the, the story's the same that we've heard, you know, in, in various cultures that, that face a similar situation where they wanted to turn the society into this agrarian society. There was a classless system. And in April 1974, they, they came into power. All all families at that time, and of course my family included, were asked to take what you can carry and you were going to walk for as long as you could. People drove their cars, so they ran out of gas into the rural areas of Cambodia. And they usually said, you know, the people in the cities fled to the forest countrysides where they said, you know, go back to where you were born, which most people was, weren't born in the cities. And if you weren't born, if you were born in the city, you just kind of followed where your family went or where they told you to go. So mm. my mother at that time had three children. She had mm, a three-year-old. My sisters were three and two. And then my brother was about 17 months old. So she traveled with them three, her husband at the time, her sister, who was actually in the middle of a blood transfusion, transfusion which they evacuated all the hospitals. So she literally had to unplug her sister from the blood transfusion mach machine and oh, God. Walk, take her along this journey to nowhere. And she actually had to bury her sister along the way because she didn't she oh succumbed to her illness at that time. And all the while, my mom is in her early 20s at this time, you know, and so you got to your arrival spot and they pretty much segregated. The children went to child labor camps. The men did X. The women did Y. The older, you know, grandparents and things like that went to a separate camp. They 
separated all families because they really wanted your loyalty and allegiance to the government. They didn't want a strong family system. And so they they separated all of us. And my mother's husband at the time really, really was just struggling with the starvation, working, you know, 14 hour days and all this and that. He eventually tried to escape. My mother refused to follow him because of the young children. And she said, where would we go? You know, yeah. where would we run to? They're everywhere. If we run into these jungles, they're going to find us. And so after she tried to talk him out of it several times, he did eventually leave and she never saw him again. Mm. And so now here she is now a single mother during this regime's rule. And my sisters, when they were five and four, as soon as you were, became that age, you were able to contribute to the society. They went to child labor camps and my mother worked and probably she said she didn't see them for two years or so. Mm, God, um, You know, and you can just imagine any parents out there being separated from your five, four and two-year-old, you know, that's awful. Maybe seeing them one time a week, you know, and knowing they weren't being fed and all those things um, was just a really tough time for my mother and shows her resilience during that time. But just fast forward to 1979, where the Vietnamese government got involved, overthrew that regime. Thankfully, my immediate family survived that turmoil and all, all of that during that time. And of course, it takes a tremendous amount of resourcefulness and just, you know, pure motivation to survive, um, that they survived that. And where my mother met my father and they followed each other and said, well, we don't like the evolution of the the current government that's that's being put into place now that the Khmer Rouge has left. And they just didn't want to raise their children in Cambodia. And so, you know, again, took what they can carry and fled mm. to refugee camps that were on the Cambodian border in Thailand, which is where my mother, my father, her three children, her three nephews and nieces, and her little sister and brother. So now we have six, seven, eight children that these two young people are responsible for. And mm. then my mother has me and my brother, two more mouths to feed in the refugee camps. So now my parents in their mid-20s or so are taking care of 10 children in these yeah. refugee camps where we stayed for four years. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think you did a pretty good job you know providing some of the history uh that happened there um but just a little bit more details uh the cambodian genocide was an explosion of mass violence that saw between 1.5 and 3 million people killed at the hands of the Khmer rouge the communist political group they had taken power in the country following the cambodian civil war and pushed the country towards the agrarian socialist society that that Sathya was talking about. And those killed were either executed as enemies of the regime or died from starvation, disease, or overwork. And like she said, uh, it ultimately collapsed when Vietnam invaded and established an occupation that would last more than a decade. Tell us about, you were so young and, and wouldn't uh, remember, but, you know, what has your mom told you about what life was like in the refugee camp? Well, it's 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 what you may have seen on TV, usually more so in the Middle East or whatnot, where you have these large huts that families are separated by one fabric sheet. 
you know, that's your little room and you're sleeping on the floor. And my mom would tell me how, you know, she wasn't being fed enough. So she wasn't producing any breast milk to feed me and would have to go to other women that were able to produce breast milk to to feed us. And so, you know, I know a lot of women now just in America with plenty of food and nutrients struggling with uh, breastfeeding and just imagine now being in this refugee camp and, and having to deal with that. Um, mm. And so food was scarce, of course, theft between families and of course space and being cramped with so many people. And it was tough for us. The reason why we stayed in the refugee camps and we had to travel from various refugee camps multiple times during the four years is because we were such a large family. It was really hard to get acceptance to come to America or France or Canada who was accepting refugees with such a large group. You know, it was easier Mm -hmm. to take a family of four. So um, it was tough because we really had to live under those that that environment, that those circumstances for longer than we would have liked. Mm. How did you guys eventually get to the U.S.? They um, you came through the refugee program. Yeah. So it sort of worked like a lottery. You put your name in. And, you know, if you were the lucky family that was picked, you you had to answer some basic questions, making sure you understand, understood and know how to speak the language of the country you were going to. So there was studying and preparing for that test. And so, yeah, once our lottery number was picked at the refugee camp we were at at the time, we came to America. We thankfully had a family member that had come before the war um, or, right, you know, a lot sooner than us who has established themselves in Long Beach, California, which is the largest population of Cambodians outside of Cambodia. And um, so thankfully we had a familiar face to come to, but it was still, you know, we, we didn't have much financial support. You obviously lost everything you had during the time. And so we really had to be again, resourceful and frugal with the little we had and the many mouths my parents had to feed. Yeah. And so what was that experience like with money uh, growing up and how did, how did the family, um, you know, get enough to, to, to live off of? Right. So mind you, both my parents, you know, there were many refugees that were doctors or, um, you know, went to university and things like that. So both of my parents were fairly uneducated. And so they didn't have really, you know, the school system or scholarship system to rely on. So they were immediately coming here to to find labor work, labor work. Um, So we would go to uh, dumpsters outside of stores and collect cardboard and cans to recycle to for food you could go to the dumpsters outside of grocery stores and get dented cans and expired produce that weren't good enough to sell but we felt weren't expired enough to not consume Mm. and then we were on government assistance for some time but it was really interesting my father has always spoken about he his goal to not stay on government assistance and that he was going to find a way to support his family on his own and we did that through, you know, slowly recycling cardboard and saving up money for that, we bought my mom a sewing machine. She began sewing clothes by the pound. 
for various, you know, clothing um, manufacturers. We have pictures of me as a baby, you know, sitting and surrounded by, you know, pow- layers of, of T-shirts that my mom would sew. That was one way that she survived during the Khmer Rouge regime was she was a really good seamstress. And so her job during that time was repairing and making clothes and backpacks for the soldiers. Mm. And so she used that skill to help us make a living here in America. And then from there, we borrowed from other people in the community and my family opened one of the earliest Odian grocery stores in the area of Cambodia, of Long Beach, which is now called Cambodia Town, where a lot of Cambodians were. And so they just rolled one savings into another investment and then ultimately opened a grocery store and then several businesses afterwards. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's kind of a crazy story when you told it to me that, you know, they were able to save fit save up enough to and built these businesses right to retire early actually um and tell me about that how did that uh how did they sort of get to that point i mean you came from a situation where my mom tells me in the refugee camps we had one banana and we had to mm. cut it 10 ways you know oh my god and and that and she didn't my parents didn't eat they split that amongst the children you had one piece of chicken breast and you split it 10 ways you know so we learned to just in terms of when you ate, you didn't eat until you were full. You ate until you were satiated. Right. Mm. And and spending wasn't even now as a financial advisor, when I'm telling people about the habits that make you financially successful, it's about consuming things and spending your money very consciously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over time, we become a little bit too, you know, frivolous or careless. Um, so my parents were very thoughtful in terms of every penny spent was either truly providing value or a reinvestment in their growth. My mother was, it's very strange, but my mother was the, not the breadwinner, they were both working, but she was the one taking care of all the investments and the, the finances of the of the family. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that that's a just a, a great lesson. I mean, you hear uh, advisors talk about clients that they have where they struggle to live off $50,000 a month, you know, and they struggle mm-hmm. to, to live within that budget. And I just, you know, you're that astonishes me. But um, tell me about your your journey into financial services, because I know a lot of your your background, your experiences, Uh, growing up, you know, have really shaped your career and what you're doing now. Right. So, you know, obviously with that upbringing where, you know what, I'm going to correct that. I will just say that with that upbringing, I definitely learned the skills early on that produces that level of success and without necessarily a lot of um, cash to start with. And I knew that building financial success was a lot more simple than what many people make it out to be. It's not just about, I need to make more money. I need to get another promotion. I need to X, you know, Um, I wanted to bring forth 
those very simple rules that I learned growing up to people because as I was growing up, I realized how immensely um, grateful I was to be in this country, to be alive, you know, Mm. and it just was a shame to see how many people here are living paycheck to paycheck, are stressed out, are working more and spending less time with their families or really on this chase of not, of you know, this endless hamster wheel of I need to make more money to do this or to feel comfortable. And it just was a shame to me. And so I wanted to get into this career to bring forward those very simple skills I learned as a child and values I learned and incorporate that with obviously academics and my education as a financial planner to provide people the peace of mind so that they could look at this part of their life with a little bit more um, certainty and, and, and less anxiousness so that they can focus more time on making money and doing the things that are they're passionate about spending more times with their families. I just think that is more important. And that is really what drives me in this career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that. Um, You know, sort of being on that hamster wheel. What, you know, I I know your, your journey into financial services was not easy. Um, So tell us about that. What were some of the challenges that you faced as you moved up in the career? I think it was a little too you know, on, on, on both sides, it was a little me and it was a little everyone else. Right. I mean, we, we hear often about it's a male dominated industry. It's a white male dominated industry, and it's hard for women or people of color to break into the industry. And, and, and of course I, I, there, I was definitely experienced that, but I will say it was a little of me too. I mean, we hear about, and we talk about, um, imposter syndrome, we talk about women's, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In book talks a lot about how little girls are raised to be more risk averse. They're not, you know, if a little boy jumps off the couch, you say, oh, look, he's just being a little boy, you know, and you laugh off his bumps and bruises and the little girl is taught not to jump off the couch and you coddle her for lack of a better word when she gets hurt. And I think there's a little bit of that social dynamic into what may have caused me some um, growing pains during Mm -hmm. the development of my career, not being intimidated to raise my hand because I was worried I might sound stupid or ask a stupid question, right? Then you're not um, being seen around your you know, your bosses and superiors, right? They don't see you. They see the loud mouth guy who has no problem voicing his opinions, right? And he looks assertive and he looks like a leader, you know? There was definitely a lot of that that I had to overcome in, and I gained that confidence through simply rehearsing, right? And looking into a mirror and saying, I got this and I do ask smart questions and all those powerful positive mantras you say to yourself. Um, You know, if I have a presentation, I revert, rehearse it a hundred times. And obviously that's just something, and you also gain that over your, just as you age, that confidence, but a little bit of your approach, because I, in terms of when you hit those external obstacles, when 
I've had women clients even say to me, oh, I don't want to use that woman attorney because she has children. And I know that she won't really give me the attention I need, Mm -hmm. even being a working mother herself. Mm -hmm. No, it was just a shame that we have those perceptions in society. And me as a single mother at that time thought, wow, what do you think of me? You know, and it it made me realize, oh, that's why you want my male advisor partner in this meeting, because you don't value or really take my recommendations seriously. And I think facing those head on in terms of coming prepared to the meeting um, and also accepting you may not ever change that person's view and how they want to perceive you. Right. I think over time, gaining the confidence of working with people that want to work with me and not, you know, fighting that, beating that dead horse was was an important lesson to learn. And uh, the last one in terms of uh, the obstacle of uh, maybe my colleagues or my bosses not seeing me because I was a woman or, you know, maybe not as loud as... um, my male counterparts, I think learning to um, practice and and put the effort and commitment into knowing your stuff really helped me gain the confidence to show up in the way that I needed to in this business world. Yeah. And I mean, something that we didn't talk about was your daughter and having, um, you know, a baby at in your early 20s and how that impacted your your career. I mean, I know it was it was I'm sure it was a struggle, but it also motivated you right to to work harder. And, uh, and tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think. My childhood and, and dealing with various things growing up, I really struggled with finding a purpose um, and motivation. You know, why do I want to go to college? Why do I want to be successful? What was it for? I really struggled with that through my teens. And, you know, um, I I always joke that my daughter, um, I... I probably needed her more than she needed me because she really gave me that purpose and, and not in the sense, not in the, just the traditional sense of, of course, now I'm responsible for this person and I need to be resp- financially responsible myself and give them a good life. But I looked at her and said, what type of woman do I want her to grow up to be? Mm. And I didn't want to, just you know show her okay this is who you should look up to or these are the traits that a good person has or a good woman you know should have but I wanted to live it and be it you know I I know that children are very you know they're very observant um they see a lot of the um you know the habits you make and and the indirect forms of communication you have. And I, and I really wanted to live up to that expectation. I wanted her to, of a, the person I wanted her to be as a contributing member to society. And so that drove me to, to really change my life and, and helped me find what, 
you know, my career in finance and how I wanted to marry helping people with becoming financially stable myself. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And so I know now, you know, you're in, you've got the sound healing band, you do a lot of meditation and, you know, I'm sure that that has also helped you just, um, you know, be healthy, uh, you know, from a mental um, and emotional state. Um, I mean, tell us about how you got into those things. How did they come into your life? It it began for me just first exploring yoga. You know, I've always never played sports growing up, but with with age, realized I really need, you know, I couldn't, before when I was younger, I could live off of nachos and pizza and have no physical <laughs> uh, results from it. But growing, you know, as you got older, that, re- that really caught up with me fast. So then I started to do, you know, really explore exercise and going to the gym and then was invited to do yoga. And then at the end of the yoga class, the teacher took a moment to what, as we lay in Shavasana or at the end of the yoga class, you're asked to lay down and just kind of be present and come back to your breath. Yoga itself is incorporating connection with your breath and movement of your body. And I was slowly introduced into this world of mindfulness of connecting your breath and being present and all those things then kind of opened the door to more of these metaphysical or spiritual activities like sound healing. So it it was beautiful that my yoga studio was having a sound healer come in and I thought, well, you know, this sounds fun. And I was hooked after that. And, and subsequently, you know, once you start to surround yourself for, with those things, you attract more of those things into your life. And we can spend a lot of time talking about the law of attraction. Um, And so then I met two young women who were also growing in their um, desire or their love of sound healing and then wanted to then uh, be a part of the community that, that offers that to people. And so we just got together during the pandemic and said, you know, why don't we pick up a healthy habit and start giving people a safe place to connect to their breath, to meditate and to heal. Mm, that's great. And um, just for listeners, you know, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, sound healing is a practice that uses vibrations, vocal or instrumental like gongs, Tibetan singing bowls and tuning forks in order to relax your mind and body. And some proponents believe it it can relieve certain ailments like anxiety and insomnia. And, you know, the idea is, is that you know, different emotions vibrate at different levels and blocked or unexpressed emotions are the main source of disease. Um, So this is supposed to help, uh, you know, unblock those uh, emotions. Um, How has meditation, mindfulness and sound healing helped you overcome, you know, some of some of the challenges in your life and, you know, maybe heal from the past? As you grow older, right, you become more aware of your habits or the choices you've made in life that usually 
result in the same outcomes, whether it's in dating, right? I'm sure everyone often has those stories of, wow, I always chose the a-hole and (laughs) I was left brokenhearted or whatnot. Um, And then I really started to ask, ask myself why that was. And I think that's how meditation and, and, and all this spiritual work helps is because it brings your awareness to it, right? Instead of living this naive, ignorant life where you just think life happens to you, you start to focus on, well, why are these things happening? What am I contributing to this outcome? And I use that concept in my practice as well with clients, right? Because Mm -hmm. people are disillusioned to feel that you know, I, I've had people come to me. I'm not happy with my advisor right now. They're in, I'm not outperforming the S&P 500. And I don't know why I'm invested this way. You know, people are too caught up and I need to have these outsized returns. Then what, why do you need those returns? You know, your benchmark is not what the S&P 500 is doing. What are your personal objectives and goals? And why why are you not achieving them? So people think, you know, they can make up for their bad spending habits or saving habits by in finding some unique investments that's going to quadruple their money when, you know, just, I mean, if you look at all the past lottery winners, right, how many several years afterwards are back to their financial position they were originally in. And so meditation has really helped, again, bring me back to an awareness of how I can change and control the outcome of my life. Hmm, that's great. And yeah, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, advisors are bringing more of the psychology and therapy into the client relationship and and talking more about emotions and how feelings impact um, clients' relationship with money. And I think that that's um, you know, really important rather than just looking at the the dollars and cents. Um, but I, I'm afraid we're just about out of t- out of time. Um, but I'd like to thank my guest Sathya Che Patterson for being on the podcast and opening up about her journey. Uh, Sathya, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to reach out to Sathya, you can reach her at ready to at arisepw.com. And we'll, we'll put this in the show notes as well. If you have a struggle, you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider 
with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation. 